to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, best-selling author J.T. Allison has stepped into the interrogation room just to clear a few things up. J.T. began her career as a presidential appointee in the White House, where a nuclear physicist taught her to obsess over travel itineraries and to make a seriously good pot of Earl Grey. This spawned both her love of loose leaf and a desire for control of her own destiny. After being jaded in the political climate in D.C., she made her way back to her first love, which was creative writing. More than 20 novels later, she's an award-winning New York Times and USA Today best-selling author. Her thrillers are published in 27 countries and in 15 languages. She's also the Emmy award-winning co-host of A Word on Words, a literary interview television show. JT, thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate your time and consideration. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> that puts all the pressure back on me. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, I, I've been reading a couple of uh, your books in, in preparation for this interview, and um, the latest release uh, Light of Me is a standalone, just as is the upcoming release in December, which is Good Girls Lie. For readers who are unfamiliar with you and your works, what should they know about these two standalones? Wow. Well, Lie to Me is uh, uh, the story that everybody told me not to write, which means it's about oh. writers. And everybody yes. says, don't ever write about writers, but I think there's nothing more fun than writing about <laughs> writing. And Good Girls Lie is a story, other, the other story everybody says, don't write, a boarding school. So a lot of people mm -hmm. love to tell me not to, not to do things, and I, uh, I, I tend to not listen to them. But they are, they are both, they're both sandwiched in with a few other standalones and some series work and everything, and, and they are just, it's been a lot of fun the past few years putting out these standalones instead of doing my procedural series. It's, it's a fresh breath of air and helps me, I think, level up creatively. Now, with the, those, you do write those, as you mentioned, those, those several other series. Um, what should readers who are new to you know about those procedural series or your series writing in general? Well, I have two of my own, uh, the Taylor Jackson series. She's a homicide lieutenant in Nashville, and there's eight books in that series. There are four books in the spinoff series from that. The medical examiner, Dr. Samantha Owens, has her own series that uh, I hope to get back to those eventually. I, I've, it's been quite a while. It's been 2012 is the last release in that. Mm. And so it's been a while. I've been off in the standalone world. And I also uh, co-wrote for several years with Catherine Coulter on a series called The Brit and the FBI, which has come to an end. And, you know, it's, it's actually really interesting doing series versus standalones and deciding when is a series done. You want it to stay fresh. You want to go out with it popular. You don't want it to be dragging on forever. And, and that's really, you know, all three of those series are in that kind of vein of, okay, you know, I think we're at a good stopping point here. Let's go do something else. So that's why uh, I've been focused on the standalones for the past several years. Now, the you know, there's so much advice for in the in the aspiring author space or in the writing guru space about 
you know, writing in series versus writing in standalones and separating your um, your different series or different genres with different pen names so that, you know, you, you don't confuse readers or lose readers along the way. And it seems to me that you've been incredibly successful following absolutely none of that advice. <laughs> Just writing what, what you want to write. So you must have very closely um, struck a chord with readers that they are still uh, tagging along with you on all of these adventures, regardless of where you take them. I have been so incredibly blessed with a lot of really, you know, there have been times when they've wanted me to change my name. And I fully feel that you should do something like that if you're starting over or Mm -hmm. if you are really doing a completely different genre. Nora Roberts, J.D. Robb, perfect Mm -hmm. example, right? It's such a different genre. Though her readers read both because readers read. And that's something I think publishers are, are realizing more and more. Readers read. It's, they're not only locked in on one genre, one book. They, they like a broad array of things. So it's easier to jump people around. So you don't have to be as secretive about it as it used to when you had a pen name in other genres. But I had spent so much time building this name mm-hmm. that by the time the, you know, that suggestion came up, it felt wrong to do. And so I said, no. And I said, you know, I'd rather just keep muddling on. And we did, we muddled on for a while um, before I, you know, made a big shift in editorial from police procedural to domestic suspense. And it's a big shift and the the tone is different. The voice is different. The, it's instead of having the, you know, the cops as the main characters, it's the people that things are happening to. It's the ordinary person and the extraordinary events is, is how I like to explain it. And so I, I kind of lucked out that everybody just put up with me moving around and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. That said, were I to write something in, say, urban fantasy, I would 100% do it under another name because it's just too jarring for people. Plus, now you've got all the fun things with the algorithms. Yes. So you confu- you confuse the people who are looking for your crime fiction if up pops your fantasy work and then it, it kind of dilutes your algorithms and it's not and then then bad things happen. I'm not exactly sure what bad things happen but bad yes. things happen. Yeah, world, world, world meltdown, I think, is the end result yeah. if you follow the flow chart. Global thermonuclear war, yes. it's just a thing, you know? Yes. So, so you don't cross the streams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good advice. It's extraordinarily bad, Ray. The latest release, Light of Me, one of the things that, that struck me about it um, is that it, it feels very much, and I, you know, I'm very, very early into it. So, you know, full disclosure to both you and, and the, the readership that I could be excessively wrong here. Feel free to correct me if I am. But I, as, as a reader to me, it feels like this is a very personal story about a lot of things in, in human experience and in human relationships, um, especially with things like, you know, perception and truth and, and the external um, view of people um, and their private life versus public life. And um, as, as an example, one of, one of my uh, old colleagues, he used to say that everyone has three lives. You have a public life that you put on social media or that even, you know, your 
your, uh, your extended friends and acquaintances, the people the office know, and then you have your personal life that only mo your most immediate family, your spouse, your partner, your, your lovers know about. But then everyone has a private life that no one else knows, no one else sees, even if it's only limited to, you know, um, uh, uh, a small hobby or a guilty pleasure or your, your internet search history. But everyone has this private life no one knows about. And lie to me really seems like you delve into uh, into a bit of that with some kind of suspicion of domestic abuse. Am I way off on this? No, you're you're absolutely right. And I love that. That that's a great example. You know, you've got a public life, a private life, and then you have your internal life. Mm -hmm. And what I like to dig into is the internal life. I love people we curate our lives, right? Yes. It, it's especially bad now that we curate them publicly. And it, so it's taken keep up with the Joneses to this epic new level, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. But one of the first things that I ask when I'm developing a character is what is their biggest secret? What is the thing that they aren't going to share with their lover that they haven't told their parents? What is that thing that they would do anything, anything to keep hidden? Mm. And that turns people who would normally are just fantastically wonderful, great law abiding citizens mm -hmm into desperate creatures and that's where i like to insert the story because that's where it gets interesting yeah we're uh we're all of the the light and all the all the things that we think we know about people suddenly become a totally different person a, a very yeah. jekyll and hyde moment yeah and it's i mean that's just the fun that's the fun of delving into characters that's the fun of unreliable narrators it's the fun of villains that to me is you know what is that thing that they're hiding and also it makes them so relatable because everybody mm -hmm. has that everyone has their skeleton in their closet that they'll do anything to avoid letting out well everyone but you and i <laughs> oh, of course of course i have no skeletons none yeah, not that I recall, Senator. No, there's a few x-rays maybe, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> now, how much research um, or preparation did you do to to put Lie to Me together? Uh, was this something you wrote really kind of based on your own experiences, your own perceptions, or did you go out and, and actually talk to, to folks with some kind of technical advisement about the psychology of this? Well, so I've been in kind of constant research mode since I started writing. Uh, I, I started with ride-alongs with homicide and overnight mm -hmm. patrol and doing uh, autopsies and, and talking to the FBI. So I've got all the procedural stuff is there. Uh, I don't have to do that research anymore. I, I need to, you know, update things every once in a while. But that that's kind of the basis. I studied psychology. So that's another you know, a mm. stack of brick, you know, I, I look at my research background as, as bricks, you know, they're stacked yes. up. I've got a pretty good foundation on those kinds of things. I don't have to do any research on writing. <laughs> yes. um, there's a scene in lie to me that uh, Sutton has been really condescended to on a panel. Um, unfortunately by her husband, my husband would never do such a thing, but I have been on that panel where I was condescended to by another male writer. And so, I mean, I just stole that and plopped it right on in, you know, it's, it's, so there's little bits 
of of real in there. But I I just I love a good villain and I love the psychology behind how horrible people are to each other. So the research though for Lie to Me ended up being going to Paris. That's I terrible. I know, isn't that awful? <laughs> it's just such a terrible job. My my husband actually took me for our anniversary and it was uh, and and well so we went for my birthday. I'm sorry. Let me back up. We actually went for my birthday and I sat there and went, all right, I want to be the cliche. I want to sit where Hemingway sat and I want yes. to write. Yeah. And so I did. And something just kind of sparked this idea, this idea of a woman who goes to Paris to start her life over. And there is a crime that happens and captures her attention. And she somehow gets so involved in it. She gets, uh, she becomes a suspect. Mm. I'm like, okay, that's a fun yes. little, that's a fun little kernel. Yes. I took it home and I started to play with it and I realized, okay, this is actually, this is more than a kernel. This is a story. And that's not what the story of lie to me is, but it's, it's where the story came from. So we went back and that time I did serious research. You know, how many steps does it take to get from her apartment to the Sen, go and you know where would I put a body on soccer court? <laughs> you know those kinds of <laughs> fabulous things. You know, walking yep. around going, hmm, here's a really great place that a dog could walk through some blood. Yes. You know the crazy silly stuff. Uh, and and so it tur- it just turned into such a bigger book than it would have ever been had I not had that experience. And and mm-hmm. one of my biggest bits of, of advice to people who want to write is go out in the world, get out of your town, get out of your state, get out of your country, go experience mm-hmm. another life. And that is what will bring real verisimilitude to your writing. Yeah. And I've, I've been very fortunate to have, to have traveled pretty extensively um, for a, a few decades now on and off. And it has made such a difference. Um, and that I, I really hope that the few areas where I, I think I've had shortcomings in my writing readers will kind of forgive it or maybe even not notice it <laughs> because of all those other elements of, of, of authenticity and hopefully getting to really immerse them in my, my memory of this scene, my experience, the smells, the sounds of, of being in the cafe in the cafe where Voltaire wrote, you know, those things that, you know, you can't do from Google. No, you can't do it. I mean, you can get things 90% of the way there, mm-hmm. but the sensory details are something you have to experience for yourself to really translate it and, and to give your characters, because obviously it's not you on your pay on the page. It's your character's experience for, for the character to truly come to life. They need to be able to have those things, even if you're not saying that they can smell something you know that and so they come alive yes and that's one of the things from a from a craft perspective that i i'm i'm still working on very diligently um and probably a little maybe a little bit too paranoid about it but in trying to balance that that showing and telling of where where do i need to make my description stop and allow the reader's imagination to take over and you know trusting the readers to to inject their own experience without totally altering the story or allowing their experience. And then my later description to kind of not coalesce and 
how do how do you try to balance that in in your work as as you're putting these books together? That's a really good question because the you see it in adaptation. That's the best example that I can come up with. When uh, one of your favorite books is made into a TV show or a movie, mm-hmm. and it's never right because it's <laughs> never what you imagined it to be. Yes. And I think it's imperative for the author to leave enough room for the uh, for the reader to make those interpretations. You know, my blonde and your blonde are two very different blondes. Mm-hmm. My blue eyes and your eye, blue eyes, two very, I mean, it, nobody, it's not homogeneous and it's, that's a good thing. Um, but it's, you know, it's really fun to see adaptations and, and argue with that and say, you know, that's not who I said. I, I, I get so much email from people who think Samantha Owens is African-American. <laughs> and you know what? In my mind, she's not. But in their mind, she is. And that's fine. Yes. That is what they've inserted. That is mm-hmm. how they've imprinted on this character. And that, is, as long as you leave things open to interpretation enough, mm-hmm. I just, I love that. People are always surprised when I say, no, she's, you know, she's got red hair and, you know, auburn hair and, and, and no, she's not. She's not African-American. They're like, yes, she is. Look at her. Cool. Yeah. That works. Yeah. It works for me. If that, if that works for you, fabulous. Yep. So I, I err on the side of, of caution with, with description. I don't like to go overboard. You know, Taylor Jackson, very easy, gray eyes, one slightly darker than the other she's got a bump in her nose and she has thick blonde hair and she's very very tall that's it that's all you got Mm -hmm. and but she comes to life so vividly for people because they can take that and and amalgamate that into the person that they envision her to be it's really cool yeah and in, in my mind she's brigitte nielsen right now so you know that's you know she started off as Charlize Theron for me. <laughs> Perfect. You know, yeah. that's everybody yeah. has their thing. It's it just, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Yeah. And on a totally different craft perspective, but one of the things that, that I would like to write um, at some point, I, I everything that I do is generally in, in, in third person limited point of view. And I started out my first draft of my first book um, that no one but a very kind and critical editor ever saw was more of a Tom Clancy third person narrative that I epically failed at. But I would really like to write a book that is both third limited and first person from the main character's point of view. Mm -hmm. And when I started reading Good Girls Lie and it seemed to me like you have very deliberately done that exact thing and done it so well. I really wanted to find out what motivated that decision and how did you try to balance the pros and cons of those two different points of view? I think that's also a great question because every story has to have its own point of view. It's, Mm -hmm. it's really important. The wrong point of view will ruin a story. It will ruin it. It will kill it dead. Um, perfect example, uh, the, the standalone before Good Girls Lie, the one that came out last year, it's called Tear Me Apart. And I wrote that entire thing in third past, and it was awful. There was something totally wrong with it. And I was about 85,000 words into it. 
And mm. I was having a bacon wow. date with a writer friend and said, something's not right. I, I, I think I may have the wrong tense. And she said, change the tense. All right. So I did. And the next thing I know, the whole book came together. Wow. Good girls lie. Same situation. I wrote in first and third and it wasn't working. And I had to go back and change a whole character arc into first person. And I was 90,000 words in. And the book, the book had just stopped. <laughs> the book had stopped. I was not going to get to the end. It literally stopped uh, to the point where I had to call my agent and say, I'm not going to make the deadline. We're going to have to pull it. it the whole, I mean, ser- this was a serious oh, thing. I don't, I don't do that lightly. Um, I've actually never done it before. I, I called them and said, all right, it's not going to happen. Um, and then I went for a walk. Yeah, I cried for a little while. Yes. <laughs> and he was really kind. And so it's no big deal. This happens. I'm like, it doesn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. But apparently it happens to everybody. And I went for a walk. And as I was walking, I called my husband. I said, I think I need to change everything to first person. And he says, all right, we'll go do it. So I did. And that fixed it. If you're trying to learn how to do that, the easiest way to do it is to take a paragraph and write it in each format. Write it in third limited. Write it in third omniscient. Write it in third present. Write it in first present. Write it in first past. And then sit there and read it to yourself and see what feels right. I mean, it's it's not, you know, a, another good example. The book that I just started, I started in first present and went, you know what, this is going to be too limiting. Mm-hmm. Thrillers are a lot easier to do in third, close yes. third, because you can move around from a lot of different perspectives. And thrillers have so many moving parts that close third is a really good place to do it. First person is really great if you need to be very immediate and it's much more mystery suspense. You know, they, they lend themselves well to the two different formats. So if you're writing a thriller, third past is the place to be. If you're writing a a mystery, first person is a great place to be because you learn things as the characters do. So it it literally just mess with it. That's all you can do is just plug it in and see which one feels the best. And if it doesn't work, change it. Yeah. I had a recent conversation with, uh, with Laura Elliott about this very thing. Um, And she also has, uh, she has a, a, uh, a book where she's deliberately first and third, depending on the, on the character. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, her explanation of it was, was so, somewhat very similar, but she's, you know, I, I let the character decide, you know, how they're going to tell their story. And to me, that feels like just a different way of rewording what you just said that, you know, let, yeah. let the story tell itself in the, the best format possible, I guess. Yeah. And don't force it. I mean, a lot of, uh, if you read, uh, uh, what is it called? I don't remember the name of the book off the top of my head. Um, writing the Blockbuster Novel. If you read Writing the Blockbuster Novel by Al Zuckerman, he says when he gets submissions in first person from debut authors, he just doesn't even look at it because they haven't learned the craft. Mm-hmm. Because writing close third is hard, right? It's not the easiest thing to do, but if you do it well, it's going to elevate your story. And that's, you know, the first person is very limiting and automatically tells people that they are in a different kind of story. 
So you have to take your genre into consideration as well. Now for your research on the upcoming book, Good Girls Lie, mm-hmm. um, which I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too, too much of this for the, the readers, but I'm, I'm really excited about, about this book and getting, getting to see how, how this story plays out. Um, you've, and, and again, correct me if I'm, if my earlier understanding, early reading of, of this is wrong, but you've crafted this character who's a young teenage sociopath who also seems to have some multiple personality issues. And you've managed to place us inside her head with her view of the world. And almost all these stories get told from usually the investigator's point of view, cleaning up or investigating, you know, what these folks do in our society. But you've given us an inside view into her head. And I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering how much research you had to do to make this believable and, 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 and authentically possible. I didn't do any research. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I, I wrote this book. It sounds terrible to say. I had to write it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to do a boarding school mystery. Which, uh, so I picked the one thing that I could do very, very well, which is sociopathic women. I I have a really good grasp of that, not because I am one, but because I think we've all bumped up against them. So that's, you know, you've got that. I really love writing villains and I have some, some pretty intense villains in my work. So, you know, I've got that. Again, the foundation is there, 22 books in, you know, the foundation has been built for these kinds of things. But I went to an all-woman's college in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. So I pulled from something that I knew intimately. And that made life a lot easier because I, um, my school, it's, it's co-ed now, but it was, it was an all-woman's college at the time and everybody had to live in the dorms where nobody was allowed to live off campus. So it was a very insular world and it was very much like a, uh, you know, a boarding school. Um, The classrooms were on the bottom floor, the dorms were above and everybody lived and breathed together. And we had, you know, China and silver in the dining room. And I mean, so this is, this was all real and all of the the legends and the stories and and there is a murder in this book that is based on a real murder that happened on campus and it just it was a very easy jumping off point for me and it was something I've been waiting to do for years always wanted to set a book there and so that was that was really really fun and and I've been very blessed to have a lot of experiences to draw upon but you know, I threw those things together and there was that story. And again, I did study psychology. I have, you know, in my procedurals studied quite a bit of uh, deviant behavior and serial killers and, and all of that kind of, all of the sociopathic and psychopathic tendencies that lead into, you know, the development of these kinds of characters. And then you just let your imagination go. I mean, what's, isn't that how it always is? You yes. take somebody and you turn it up to 11? Yes. Yeah. Now, in, you, you mentioned it earlier in the, in the interview, but you wrote a, uh, or co-authored a series with Catherine Coulter. And for me, and I think for a lot of creatives, um, it's very difficult working with a partner and having an, an equal relationship in the creativity and the writing process. Um, 
for authors who are trying to establish such a relationship, what would you suggest or recommend they do to make sure that that's a, a productive partnership rather than, you know, the typical group experience as in the adult world of, um, you know, one person does all the work and the other person gets a lot of the credit. <laughs> well, I mean, every co-writing team is different. And, you know, when you're working with a brand versus working with somebody who's a peer, that's also a very different scenario. Um, the, the books with Catherine, obviously she's the brand and as such, the rules are the brand is the one who drives the bus, as she likes to say. Um, so if, if there was something we disagreed on, she got to make the call on that. I, I didn't, um, I was, I was hired to do that work and we worked very, very collaboratively together. Um. And it, what worked very, very well for us was knowing, you know, like picking what the characters looked like. So we were both working from the same page on that. But it was, that, was a, that was a different collaborative experience than, I think, sitting down with a friend and saying, okay, let's, let's do this. And for that, you have to have somebody that gets to be the deal breaker, you know, that gets to say, okay, we have to make a decision and we're going to go with my decision here because I, you know, so you have to have that. You have to have somebody that's going to be able to, to be the, the last word, (laughs) but gosh, talk about research. Those books took research. I mean, because you know, uh, a, I'm not British. B, I'm not in the FBI. <laughs> C, <laughs> the, the level of, you know, they're very technologically heavy James Bondy kind of books. And they took a lot of research, a lot of research. So what, uh, what kind of research in terms of like technical advisement? Did you guys have, you know, experts that you reached out to? Was it a lot of open source information, a combination of both? All of the above. I everything from I went and toured the FBI facility in New York at Federal Plaza to uh, this latest book, the one that is called The Last Second that just came out. There is a former astronaut that puts a nuclear bomb on a satellite uh, to cause an EMP, and happily, my dad was in aerospace. <laughs> so <laughs> I've grown up around rockets. And I knew a lot about it, but I needed a ton of research. So he and my brothers, both my brothers, uh, the whole families worked for Lockheed Martin, including me at one point. So uh, there was a lot of over the, the phone and over the dinner table conversations of how do we make this work? How do I do this? What would the satellite look like? How big does it need to be? You know, my... It's one of those, every time I start a book like this, I type in my Google search engine, I am doing research for a book because the NSA is so looking <laughs> over my shoulder. I mean, they would have to be. We, we took down Air Force One in one of the books. I mean, it's, oh, wow. yes. you know, so yeah. they're very high, high technology, high thriller, high octane kind of high concept. Wow, that's a lot of highs. Yes, um, yes. But that's, that's what those books are. So they take a completely different level of research than, say, Good Girls Lie, where I'm drawing on my own personal experiences and throwing them on the page. It's really, you know, it's a lot of fun. 
what was your first inspiration to write? And when did you realize from feedback from people who weren't obligated to be kind? Oh, goodness. Well, I've always been a writer. Um, I started when I was a kid and it was kind of, you know, I was the one that people brought their papers to, to, to edit and, and things. It's just always, that was my gift. I can't do numbers, but I can do words. Um, but so I, I went to college planning to, to be a writer and my thesis advisor told me enough to get published and wouldn't write me a recommendation for an MFA program that I wanted to go to. So that ends up being a problem. I left for several years, eight years, actually, I took off from writing and then came back to it and uh, did my due diligence and did my research. And it was a John Sanford book that really turned me back on to it. Um, I figured if he could do it, so can I not realizing um, the hubris of that statement. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm yes. such an idiot. Yes. But I did finally figure it all out. And there was a guy who worked with my husband. His name is Pat Embry. And he worked at the Tennessee and it's a newspaper here in town. And he offered to take a look at it. And I shared it with him and I shared it with one of the other guys there at, at, at work that we were friends with. And they both came back and were like, um, you could do something with this. Like, what? You're kidding. And they're like, no. So that started me down the path. And I found an independent editor who loved it. And the next thing I knew, you know, uh, I was in Sisters in Crime and had a critique group and uh, had a blog and found an agent and, and it all happened so fast from that, you know, that first moment of somebody reading it and saying, hey, you know, this sucks, but it's got potential because yes. <laughs> <laughs> it did suck. Oh, my gosh, it sucked so bad. I, oh, wow. Now, one of the one of the recurring themes of this podcast um, from uh, advice in my own life, but also, I guess, my, my own experiences um, or aspiring experiences is more accurate to be fair. But it, I think it only takes about a decade of consistent, nonstop blood, sweat and tears to become an overnight success. Sure. And so in your journey from, you know, inspiration to writing group to international best-selling author, do you feel that that is a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I, there are very few overnight successes. And if you set out to become one, you're doomed. I mean, this, this is an industry that chews people up and spits them out. <laughs> and you are rewarded for the grind. And unfortunately, not everybody who grinds gets rewarded. Um, which is really frustrating because there are some absolutely fantastic authors who just didn't have, you know, people that came up with me who are wonderful and better writers than I am. And they didn't necessarily have the same combination of luck on the same day that I had it. And so they are doing different things than I'm doing. And I'm very cognizant of that. I mean, it, this is, Yes, there's talent involved, but there's also a heck of a lot of luck and timing and writing the book that hits the market well. And like, I mean, Lie to Me really, it was my breakout novel and it was my 18th. Um, so it's, it's not something that does happen overnight. And you have to have 
You have to have a thick skin. You have to be willing to put in the work. I mean, most of the authors I know that are hugely successful are the ones that get up and write before they go to their job. Mm-hmm. And they still, even with the level of success that they have, they still have a job. Which, you know, that my goal from day one was to be a full-time writer and I lucked out and I've been one. But it is button share. <laughs> it is doing the work. This is not a vanity project. If you want to be a successful author, if you want to be a successful any kind of artist, you have to do the work. And that means when the sales are great, you got to sit down and do the work. When the sales are terrible, you have to sit down and do the work. When you get that, you know, that starred review, you got to sit down and do the work. When you get that one star review on Amazon from somebody who just thinks that you've written crap and asked for their money back, <laughs> you got to sit down and do the work. Yes. It just, that is the common denominator for success is doing the work. Now on, on that note, you also have two tails press and yeah, with the publishing industry, I, I had um, such gross misconceptions about what the business of writing was going to be before I got picked up and published that my perceptions of it have totally changed. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. I've lost some of my ignorance, but in, in the changing marketplace today, what do aspiring authors need to do to attract the attention of an agent, of a publisher? Um, to start putting themselves in a position that they can begin that upward path up the mountain? First, you have to write what you love and write it with passion. If you try to write something because it's the market trend, that's never going to work. You have to know your craft. And I mean, know it. You can't be giving things, you can't be turning things in that have typos. You have to hire a developmental editor. You can't ever show anybody anything until you have taken it through an editorial process that you know, you know, whether you've had a fellow writer who is a professional who will tell you the truth and help you level up your your work, whether you hire somebody, whether you've got a critique group of peers who, you know, aren't just doing this as a hobby, they're doing this for real. You have to be able to do that. We have such incredible organizations now that didn't exist when I was coming up. Um, I had Sisters in Crime, and we had a group called the Guppies. And in the group of the Guppies, they had critique groups. I got a couple of beta readers out of that. One of them, who still 22 manuscripts later, reads and critiques my work for me. She's totally unbiased. She will not uh, blow sunshine if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, those, are, those are just absolute prerequisites before you even think about trying to get published. Then you've got to, unfortunately, have a bit of a platform. I still believe wholeheartedly that you can break into publishing without having a hugely successful internet following. I, I just don't think that that's, a, that's something that you need. I think if you spend your time honing your craft and coming up with something fresh and new and unique that has a voice and has just real structure to it and, and strength in, in what you're trying to get across to people, 
and that you're passionate about, that those, those kinds of books are the ones that get bought. You go look at the series of debuts from this year. There has been an inordinate amount of really well-conceived books that have been bought. So they were obviously they were bought last year and they're just now starting to come out. But it's, it's fascinating to me, actually, to look at the crop of debuts and see people. There's so much good work out there now. Not that there wasn't before, but the marketplace has changed. It, it always does. It's, it's always evolving and it will continue to do that. But the, the books that are coming out now are really sophisticated. They're really high concept. The things that a New York publisher is going to buy have to be at that level or else you're not going to get picked up. Does that mean there's not an audience? No. There is an audience for everything. There is a niche for every single kind of book out there. And just because it's not right for the New York template does not necessarily mean that it's not a publishable manuscript that's not going to be hugely successful. And that's where I think people get kind of lost. They, you know, they feel like they need that validation from New York that this, you know, if you get that agent and you get that deal with the big five publisher, that's it. You are golden. <laughs> you, and guess what? That may happen, but then you got to do the work <laughs> so you can stay there. And you're still, you know, the vagaries of the market. You know, you could have a book drop the day there's a terror attack. I had that happen once. Oh no! I had a book come out the day of a big terror attack. And Nobody was talking about my book, and the book disappeared. Everybody with 9-11 had the exact same situation. Yes. So, you know, you can't measure your own satisfaction on a New York deal, right? If that is your goal, fantastic. Do it. If that is not your goal, if you want to strike out on your own, there has never been a better time. The pro only problem with it, now, you mentioned two tales, and this is my, uh, my own version of this, when, you know, things were all careers wax and wane, and mine was waning, and I decided, all right, I want to self-publish this book that I just can't seem to get right. I know it's got a market. It's not hitting, it's not hitting the marks in New York. I'm going to go ahead and self-publish it. So I started a, a publishing house to do that. I also had a Taylor Jackson novel that was my very first book that uh, had never been published. And I figured, all right, I can polish this up and publish it as well. I just wanted to have a plan B because you just never know. You know, New York, New York is an interesting place. It, 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 we lose borders and everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. Yes. If we lost Barnes and Noble, everything would fall apart. It, these kinds of fluctuations are completely out of your control. So I wanted to have a little bit of control. So I started Two Tales, put up a bunch of my short stories that had been published and anthologized over the years, made a little bit of money at it and went, huh, all right, I wonder what I could do if I had a novel. As it happens, three days before we went to press on the first book, my publisher popped back up and said, you know what? we want this book. <laughs> so I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And they're like, yep, yeah, we, we want this book. So 
gimme, gimme. And, you know, they made a really nice offer for it. And uh, so I gave it to them and, and did that. And then the other book that I was getting ready to self-publish got on another editor's radar at a different house because my, my house did not want that book. They wanted mm-hmm. something else. And so that one got bought. So I ended up building this press and not having any novels to put out. under. <laughs> and I'd done all this work. Yes. So I went ahead and got a couple of uh, anthologies together and put them out under that banner. And it's been wonderful. The thing about being your own publisher, about indie publishing, is you are so fractured. You have to do the writing and you have to do everything else. It is a doable thing. If you have an entrepreneurial spirit and an entrepreneurial mind and you don't mind segmenting your day into creative and business, you will succeed and do a wonderful job. If you aren't business-minded, you'll never succeed at self-publishing because that's, it's just something that takes so much mental energy yes. to do it well. And you know, I'm kind of in the business of nothing's worth doing if you don't do it well. So that that was a very long answer. No, that was, that was <laughs> I apologize. Exactly, no, that's exactly the kind of expertise that uh, that, that we're looking for here. Um, now, with all of your very prolific writing, um, you know, and, and writers are, in my experience, are are also some of the most prolific readers. I wonder if you have a favorite fictional investigator or detective, or maybe just one that's you have a little bit higher esteem right now. Oh my goodness. I read so much. I love everybody. I'm a big, I love Daniel Silva. So Gabriel Alon immediately off the top of my head. I love Mitch Rapp. Uh, Vince was a friend and and we all feel Mm. his loss so keenly, but Kyle Mills has done a brilliant job stepping in on that series. Just really, really amazingly well done. Um, I obviously Sanford, Lucas Davenport's always been a huge thing. Tess Gerritsen's uh, characters, Rizzoli and Isles, love, 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 love. Yes. Erica Spindler, I mean, Alex Cava, I could go, oh my gosh, we would be here the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot of suspense as well. And I also, uh, on another weird sideline, have a TV show that I do a lot of literary uh, interviews. And, and mm-hmm. so I read a lot of literary work that is, completely out of the the crime fiction realm so i'm i read broadly and if i'm not reading i'm not writing that's the two go hand in hand for me oh wow so with that in mind and you having an entire multiple universes from which to pull for this last question i ask of all the authors that come on the show uh, but jt god forbid it should happen but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist even would you want on the case? And you can pick anyone. It is your murder after all. Oh, Gabriel Alon. <laughs> that was because if, that was, if that happened to me, there would have to be some sort of international component. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I, I greatly appreciate your time and coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. This has been an incredibly valuable interview for us. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international best-selling author J.T. Ellison. 
Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.